From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Here in the American Jesuit universe, we're in two parallel holy seasons at the same time. We're about halfway through Lent, of course, but we're also celebrating March Madness. Nine Jesuit teams between the women's and men's tournaments are in the big dance this year, and you can read all about them on our website at jesuits.org basketball. My guest today didn't quite make the NCAA tournament this year, but he led one of the biggest success stories in all of college basketball this season. And this was his first year as a head coach at any level. Coach Keith Ergo leads the Fordham Rams men's team, which put up a record of 25 wins and 8 losses this season. The last time Fordham won this many games in a season was all the way back in 1991. Coach Ergo has deep Jesuit roots. He went to Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C., then played basketball and lacrosse at Fairfield University in Connecticut. After college, he spent time working with a nonprofit organization called Peace Players, which uses basketball to bring together people in some of the most divided countries on earth. He's a fascinating guy, and you'll want to keep your eye on him in future seasons. After my conversation with Keith Ergo, we're rerunning one of my favorite basketball segments we've ever done here on the show. A couple of years ago, I talked to the author John Gassaway, who writes on college hoops for ESPN and wrote a book on Catholic college basketball called Miracles on the Hardwood. At the end of that conversation, we took turns drafting the greatest men's players in Jesuit University and college basketball history, building fantasy teams who will only ever compete against each other in our imaginations. I hope you enjoy both of these segments and have fun rooting for Creighton, Marquette, Gonzaga, St. Louis University, Holy Cross, and Xavier this week. Thanks for joining us. Well, Coach Keith Ergo, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? Fantastic. It's truly an honor to be a part of the podcast. I, I really do appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. No, I'm excited to, to have you on. Well, uh, you're a first-year head coach at Fordham. And before this year, Fordham uh, had had two winning seasons since joining the Atlantic 10 Conference in 1995. Um, last year, when you were associate head coach, they started to turn some things around. But this year, so far, through your regular season, you were 24-7, and 12-6 and six in the conference, 18-2 and two at home. So what are some of the factors that have led to, to this success so quickly? Well, you know, I, I think one of the, um, the things is our staff is, is truly as connected as our players are. Um, I'm very fortunate to have wonderful people in our program that decided to stick around when I became the head coach. They have tremendous relationships with our players, and that's really the most important piece that we, we harp on in our program. We have unique and, and really authentic relationships with our guys. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And then, you know, I think the connectivity within our locker room and the leadership within our locker room is, is uh, something I've been blown away by. You know, we have a couple of uh, seniors and grad seniors and Darius Quisenberry, Khalid Moore, and some other guys like Antrell Charlton and Kyle Rose that have really taken upon themselves to to um, increase their leadership and learn how to be more effective leaders. And as a result, the players are holding each other accountable within the locker room and they're really connected and they're rooting for one another. There's no animosity or jealousy. And as and I think that's one of the biggest uh, biggest uh, differences between last year's team and this year's team and the reason why we've had some success. 
So you're talking about relationships and leadership development. I'm thinking as you, as someone who has a lot of Jesuit experience in high school at Gonzaga High School and here in DC, where I am, uh, at Fairfield University, now at Fordham, uh, I think it's some of like the key values at the heart of Jesuit education. And they seem like they'd carry over to coaching pretty well. You know, like they hear about the Majus or men and women for others or like Cura Personalis. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about like how your experience in Jesuit education kind of affected the way you approach coaching? 100%. I mean, men and women for others has been a, a, a um, kind of my mantra, my family's mantra for years and years and years. You know, my father went to Brooklyn Prep. Fordham undergrad, Fordham law, you know, my, my brothers went to Georgetown prep. I went to Gadag. A couple of brothers went to Gadag and St. John's a good council. Uh, you know, my sister went to visitation. We've, we've, we've been, um, we've, we've grown up among the Jesuit education. I obviously I went to Fairfield as well. So, you know, men and women for others at Gonzaga that was instilled at a very early age and something that we harp on obviously on a daily basis we want to make sure our kids, and again, it comes back to care of personality as well. I mean, the way we recruited Fordham, we want young men to be students first and athletes second. We want them to understand that we have to get out in the community and we have to we have, to have an incredible amount of gratitude uh, and humility for all the wonderful blessings that we have. And we want to be a part of the community. We want to take pride in the name of the front of the jersey instead of the name on the back. And I think our current roster and the kids we have coming into our program and our staff, they really truly believe and have faith in, in those values and, and of pure personality and, and certainly men and women for others. I mean, coaching is like teaching. It's a service service position. And we're, we're very blessed to have the opportunity to, to try at least make an impact on young men, young men's lives. So you, you mentioned kind of coaching as a service position, kind of that service to the team and to the game, to the university. And in your background, some really interesting uh, details about you is that you spent some time with an organization that's it's now called Peace Players, which brings young people together in some of like the most conflict-ridden places in the world, like to kind of grow, build relationship together through the game of basketball. And you were involved in yourself organizing camps uh, in Northern Ireland across kind of Catholic Protestant lines and, and also in South Africa across racial lines. Curious about how those experiences also kind of shaped you as a, the person and coach you are. Oh, that's that's that experience is why I wanted to get in coaching. I, I saw what. Um, the power of sports was real when we were living in South Africa, doing um, starting beginning uh, Peace Players International with fellow, you know, classmates at Gonzaga, Sean and Devin Tui, best friends of, of mine, and my best man of my wedding is Devin, and my brother Sean was best man at Sean and Tui's wedding. So our families are very connected, Gonzaga connection, um, and then you know we we were able to you know, then move upon graduation out to, to Northern Ireland and and use the program to bridge divide. And so I saw very quickly and very powerfully how Fort had the ability to unify human beings from all religious races, creeds, things of that nature. So, you know, it was an amazing honor and amazing experience. I learned as much about myself as I did about anything else, but certainly it is one of the main reasons that I wanted to get into coaching because you could see the unification and what sport had the ability to do. Um, and it was truly remarkable. What are some of the things about sports, do you think, and maybe even basketball in particular, that kind of facilitate that that sort of relationship building? 
So I believe music and sport have the ability to unify folks from all backgrounds across the world. You know, you could be anywhere in the world listening to some music and doesn't matter what you look like, what you believe in, you're still dancing. And next, you know, and then obviously it's the same thing with 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 uh, sports. You know, those two things, you know, believe it or not, children of all ages and even grown adults, when they start mingling with 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 a ball or with music, they don't really pay attention to anything else but what they're doing in that present moment. Hmm. So you have come from that experience and, and come back uh, to the, the U.S. and been involved in coaching. You've been coaching now for almost 20 years, um, at different high school, college level. But this is the first time you've been a head coach of your own uh, program in that journey. And I'm curious for you in your first year doing that, what like is one thing or a couple of things that have surprised you about this job that uh, you didn't know might be uh, part of that work as a head coach? Like what, what has uh, been yeah, a biggest surprise for you maybe? You know, um, I think just, you know, the, the level of um, responsibility off the basketball courts, you know, I, I was pretty prepared. I'm, I'm not that young uh, in the business. I'd been in the business between high school and high major basketball 20 years. And as a result, I was more prepared than most. Um, but um, and, and I had some responsibilities as the associate head coach, both at Penn State for a number of years and then here last year at Fordham that most head coaches would be involved with when it comes to fundraising and marketing and uh, daily operations and scheduling and budget. So I was fairly prepared, but I will say the, the, the demands off the court and learning how to balance between your team, uh, um, your alumni base, as well as your, your own family. Um, th those are the most challenging pieces Understanding you're still a family, you're still a father, you know, and, and you need some family balance and, and you can't be too wrapped up in your, your own self and your own job and, and neglect, you know, the fact that your number one job is to be a great husband and a father. So you, you again mentioned like the, the importance of being a husband and father and you have, you know, four, I think, relatively young kids, right? And uh you're talking to me on a Tuesday. You got your biggest game of the season coming up Thursday. Like, how do you, in the middle of the, uh, yeah, in that season, I kind of balance those things. Like, I, I, this sounds impossible. I try to do the best I can. I'm, I'm definitely not perfect. I need to do, um, I need to do a better job of it. <laughs> my wife would certainly tell you that. Probably my kids. So, um, you know, you just, you try to do your best. You don't sleep a whole lot, but you know, you, you just got to try to figure out your priorities and do the best. And something I'm constantly working on and progressing towards because I'm not perfect. and um, It's not easy, but, you know, it's also a great responsibility that I take a lot of pride in as well. Sure. So you mentioned your own family connections at Fordham. Your dad had gone there. Uh, now in a couple of years there, you have a new president and President Tanya Tetlow. What, uh, what has struck you about Fordham University in your, in your couple of years on campus there? It's just beautiful. I mean, the wonderful community. It's just such a fantastic place that, you know, I understand why, there's so much pride from my in my father and his from his experience at Fordham, and I had a number of friends that went to Fordham, and how much they love Fordham University, and how much they learned while being a part of the community, and such a proud alumni base, and you know it's in the greatest city in the world. So you know I know that 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 struggles, you know, it, it's a struggle to hear that coming from someone from DC area, but it's the truth. I mean it's it's just a fantastic place. Um, so I just 
you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and blessed to have spent some time here and, and to continue to develop the relationships that I've been a part of and will continue to be a part of and the wonderful people I've met. Um, and so it's, it's just, um, I'm very blessed for sure. There's you know, no shortage of the kind of Northeast Jesuit and just generally Catholic colleges, universities that have these kind of, you know, big basketball programs, right? And you spend some time at, at Villanova, which is certainly one of them. And like through up and down the, the cities on the East Coast, you know, I, I'm just wondering, so for you, like with Fordham having historically, at least recent history, not been there, but now taking the step, what is it that you're saying to recruits? You mentioned some of those things. Like what, what are you saying about why Fordham uh, could be like a great fit for an up and coming basketball player who might have options? Well, I would say, you know, you have a top 50 academic institution and a pure basketball conference in the Atlantic 10 in the greatest city in the world. Mm. You know, I'm not exactly sure what else you would be looking for, for as a parent to have your child have an opportunity to get one of the best degrees in the country, along with playing in a, in a program that truly cares about its players and its relationships with those players um, it, it's something really special that we take a lot of pride in. Um, so, but, but we do demand a lot. We do demand that you're a tremendous, uh, student. We demand that you get out in the community and you represent the university and the program. And then we also obviously demand a heck of a lot on the court as well. So we need you to understand it's really important. And we, you know, that, that you want to be all three of those things. Hmm. So, and you arrived at Fordham as an associate head coach just one year again with her coach Kyle Neptune, with whom you had worked at Villanova. Then Villanova's legendary coach Jay Wright kind of shocked everyone, said he was retiring after last season. Kyle gets hired, he goes down there, and you have this whirlwind in which you're promoted to head coach. Um, that sounds like from the outside is quite a whirlwind. What was that experience for you? Uh, kind of a was it was whirlwind a good word for it? One hundred percent. I mean, everything happened fairly quickly. Um, you've been waiting, you know, for me, I've been waiting almost 20 years to get an opportunity to become a head coach. And all of a sudden it happens out abruptly in one of the strangest ways you could ever imagine. So um, I, I was just <laughs> I, I was just kind of confused, you know, confused for a little bit, but then excited. And then I went right back into work mode. And fortunately, I got the opportunity and we've run from there. Uh, so I, I mentioned Jay Wright as someone you had worked for. Again, uh, to me, always struck me as like one of the classiest guys in the sport who like won the right way. Uh, he treated people well. Can you like talk about him at all and how he affected your your own journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I learned an incredible amount uh, as a man from from Coach Jay Wright. Obviously, he gave me an opportunity. I'm I'm forever grateful for. Um, you know, and he he really. Um, I learned a lot when it comes to just being simple. Don't try to overcomplicate. You know, don't, don't, it's not rocket science. It's about relationships. It's about keeping things simple. Um, and it's about the power of attitude. Uh, understanding you can only control two things when you wake up in the morning and that's, you're either going to be negatively, negatively impacted by the things that take place in your life that day, or you can, you know, think positively. Uh, and each and every day we think positively. We want energy. We want enthusiasm. Um, and then, you know, Coach Patrick Chambers at Penn State took it to another level. His relationships with his players and his staff were unlike any other that I had been a part of. So I was incredibly fortunate to learn from both of those um, coaches and men in my life. And I'm, I'm forever grateful to both of them for allowing me to be a part of their journey and then also for teaching me so many different things, not only about coaching, but about being a man and a life and a coach. So very blessed. 
So there was a great profile of you in the Washington Post recently. And I think one of the details that caught my attention was that your life path was altered two separate times by serious car crashes. Uh, first, you couldn't play sports for a couple of years uh, in college. And then, then the second crash brought you back to D.C. to be with your family. That's when you started coaching. Can you talk about like that, those kind of like those challenges and responding to that adversity and, and how that affected your own your own life? Yeah, you know what? Um one of the, the big car accidents, honestly, you know, fortunately, I have uh, eight brothers and one sister. And one of my brothers, when I was in the hospital room, you know, walked in and instead of, you know, being soft on me and, and having empathy, he said, look, you're selfish. You know, you got to get you got to get your things together right here. You got to think about mom and dad and what you put them through and, you know, your family and, you know, your decisions are you're going to affect more people than you just think. It's not just about you, blah, blah, blah. So instead of coming in and saying, oh, you're, you're banged up, you know, are you OK, blah, blah, blah. It was a little bit more of, of harsh love and understanding that, you know, um, in reality, you, you got to change kind of the course of your you got you got to make better decisions. Um, and, and that's just kind of some of the decisions that I was making when I was young, which is normal. Um, and I, fortunately, uh, I was able to learn from them and make some adjustments and and uh, make sure that I continued to, to work on being a better person and doing more, making more, not always the right decisions, but certainly making better decisions more often. Sure. So this episode will come out after the Atlantic 10 tournament is over. You don't even know who you're playing uh, Thursday yet. We're talking on Tuesday, uh, March 7th. But I'm curious for you, no matter the opponent, what would be the message to your team? What is the message to your team in practice this week, heading into the postseason? Uh, what are you trying to, to make sure that they uh, understand kind of going into this new phase in the season? Just continue to do what we've been doing. Nothing changes. We want to be the best team we can be by the end of the year. We want to continue to work on getting 1% better every day in practice, which we'll do today. And tomorrow and then, you know, Thursday night, no matter what, we don't focus really on our opponent too much. We focus on ourselves. You still need some lucky bounces here and there to advance in the tournament. So, you know, that doesn't always mean it's going to be wins and losses, but we need to do what we've been doing all year long. And that's play as hard as we possibly can for each other. Focus on each other. Stay as connected as we can for each other. And, and good things usually take place when you do those things. Well, Coach Keith Ergo, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, congratulations on the, the great first season, uh, regular season, it's not over yet, uh, and best of luck in the postseason. And uh, yeah, thank you again and best of luck to you uh, in your years to come. And I thank you enough for having me on. It's truly an honor and I appreciate all of it. Go Rams! <laughs> Thanks, Coach. All righty, have a great day. Thank you. Be watching. You too. Thanks so much to Coach Keith Ergo for making time to chat in the middle of his busy season. And now here's our draft of the greatest Jesuit school basketball players of all time with ESPN's John Gassaway. Uh, you've transitioned us nicely into uh, what the, the part of this conversation I'm very excited about, uh, which is a, we're going to draft uh, Jesuit basketball players. So uh, you mentioned Julius Irving. He's not eligible. He did not go to Jesuit school. But there are so many um, from the 27 uh, Jesuit schools uh, with basketball programs. That I thought we could kind of make teams, uh, fantasy teams, if you will, um, of players through the ages. Uh, the one restriction is there's one player per school allowed. So this way we can Ooh. cover, we'll cover, we wow. can cover 10 schools this way. Wow. Uh, since, um, yeah, did I not prepare you for that? I thought I mentioned that <laughs> as we were getting ready, but no, I feel I like, 
in your research, you're ready. You probably have the Rolodex. Um, I do have, I have made a list. Um, so, uh, it's for me. Okay. This is how I'm thinking of this. This is essentially, you're rolling a ball out onto the court. You get five players. I get five players and like, imagine them kind of like in their primes of their careers. Uh, and, and we'll see. So you kind of want to maybe think about balance. Do you need like a big player? You're going to go small. What are you going to do? And we'll say like, we're sort of playing in like today's basketball environment with a three-point line and, and those things yeah, yeah. though who yeah. knows i don't know anyway yeah. um we'll see we can just take a time moment to mention why you're picking these guys but you'll see i think for folks who might not see the the um, real depth of uh rosters we have here we can make a few teams just yeah, do yeah. One, one per school so why don't you can as the guest you can take the first pick oh. uh, so who's your first your first overall jesuit basketball player for your team well thank you that's that's kind of you and i will point out that you know although i can prepare for this draft as much as I want. Uh, it, it, I, I do have to respond in real time to you taking my picks. So right. I, I'll, I'll do my best here. But with the number one uh, overall pick in the Jesuit uh, all-time college basketball draft, John Gassaway takes uh, Bill Russell out of the University of San Francisco, uh, uh, leading uh, scorer and legend from the teams that won the national title in 1995, 1955 and 1956. And that second team was the first team in NCAA history to win the national championship at, with a perfect record. So he's he's a good guy to take first. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, what's the what did you learn about him or the the USF program in your your research? Again, to to me to think that you could ha- these, the era is so different in some ways. Like to imagine USF competing at that level. How did he end up there? Yeah, the contrast between him and another legend who might be taken with the next pick, <laughs> who was the object of a recruiting frenzy uh, th- some thirty years later. Uh, could not be more stark, and I did not know that story before doing this book. Uh, he was not uh, recruited <laughs> out of high school, and once he became the Bill Russell, uh, he, he quickly became the you know best player by far in college basketball. And once that became clear, his high school coach said, with no uh, insult meant, just said, honestly, he wasn't even the best player on our high school team. Uh, he just absolutely exploded. He also grew uh, three inches uh, at at the University of San Francisco, which helped. He was from Oakland. He played at McClyman's High School. And uh, San Francisco uh, did uh, win the 1949 NIT, an event that uh, later had doubt cast upon it due to uh, the teams in the field engaging in point shaving. But it was a very good San Francisco team. And one of the players from that uh, roster was uh, playing in a pickup game against this guy, Bill Russell. And he mentioned to the staff at San Francisco, you might want to give this guy a look. And that was the only scholarship offer he got. Uh, from Russell's perspective, he had lived since he was eight years old in Oakland and had never once heard the name University of San Francisco uttered. He had no idea, you know, that there was this Jesuit school on the other end of the Bay Bridge and uh, the rest is history. Okay. Well, Bill Russell often, you know, mentioned in the, the, the you know, breath is one of the top five players of all time. Can't go wrong there. I had already written him in next to your name before you said it. Um, <laughs> let's see. So with my pick, you know what? I, I'm not going to take who you mentioned, who you okay. gestured toward. I'm, you have your center, I, but I'm going to take Elgin Baylor uh, in honor of right. uh, Elgin's career. Um, 
again, just someone who would fit well in today's game. So if I'm imagining us playing today's rules, someone who, you know, I think he still would, uh, would play well in today's setup. And again, we talked about him earlier, so not much more to say about him, but I'm happy to have him with my first pick. So we'll throw it back to you and you can take your, uh, well, your second I pick. Just, I just have to uh, doff my cap and say that's a, that's an excellent pick. You've uh, you've got rebounding and scoring uh, all all in one incredible package. So well done there. All right, for my second pick, uh, I'm going to uh, zoom forward a few decades, and uh, I'm going to take uh, Dwayne Wade out of Marquette, the oh. hero of their. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I started writing that in before you said. I, I'm really. I know exactly where you're going. This is you're you're already set up here. You're in good shape. The the hero of their uh, of Marquette's run to the 2003 Final Four, and what I like about uh, Wade, particularly as a college player, uh, somewhat as as the NBA legend that he rightly became. Uh, just a versatile uh, player, and he, he did it all for Marquette and his coach at the time, Tom Green. Yes, he was a scorer. Uh, yes, he was a distributor, but a, a force of nature on, on defense and even on the, on the defensive glass at, at a relatively modest height. So, I mean, he, would, he was a true basketball player who, who would do what it takes. Yeah. No, I, again, I, he, I was thinking of taking him first, but I thought you could then pair Baylor with Russell and that would be pretty fierce. So, but yeah, no great pick. I remember like I was like right at the end of high school during that run and I almost bought a Marquette t-shirt, even though I was from New Jersey and had no connection because they were you know so fond of him and Travis Diener and uh, just running around and surprising people on, on that. So yeah, great memories of that. Um, but you, I do get now to take my favorite player of all time, which is less about his uh, his college career than his pro career. But I'll take Allen Iverson from Georgetown. Uh, I'm a big Sixers fan. There's just no one who just I don't know played harder and did more fun things and just fun to root for. And uh, yeah, so that, I'm happy to, to take Iverson and not to take Patrick Ewing from Georgetown. Um, who I also like and has had success as a coach there now a little bit, but uh, I can't leave Iverson on the board any longer. So I'm going to take him and pair him with uh, with Elgin Baylor for my second pick. All right. Well, you you've got a tough team already. I'll say that. Now, are the let me let me clarify the rules. Once you've uh, touched on a school, then that school is off the board, right? I can't that touch school, them anymore. You can't take Ewing, right, or anyone else right. from Georgetown, no, no. Um, or Jimmy Butler, or any of our other Marquette players, right? Exactly. So we're trying to give it some love across the um, the Jesuit network today. So uh, all right, one per school. All right. Uh, I think for my next pick, then, I'll go with Jameer Nelson out of uh, St. Joe's. Uh, He was the National Player of the Year in 2004. The early 2000s were uh, a time of of plenty for uh, Catholic and, indeed, Jesuit uh, college hoops with with Wade and and Nelson and uh, Phil Martelli, a colorful character, getting into a scrap that year with Billy Backer. But uh, I'll, I'll take Nelson with my third pick. Oh yeah, as a former uh, South Jersey Philly guy, I, I love that that pick. Um, they were undefeated regular season going into the tournament, right? That that one year. That's and, right. Yeah, felt like they had a, a run and then a really kind of heartbreaking uh, Elite Eight game against Oklahoma. They State. were uh, they were undefeated going into the Atlantic Ten tournament, and then and then they got wiped out by uh, Xavier, ironically, uh, by like twenty in the first round of the A Ten tournament, which uh, elevated the controversy of should they receive a one seed, and then when they did. Uh, Packer on the selection show 
uh, criticize that decision. <laughs> Martelli had a profane uh, public response, and uh, it, it's it's a great uh, Catholic basketball story. Yeah, we really you could do a whole like uh, fantasy draft of coaches too. There've been so many of these college yeah, yeah, coaches yeah. Uh, in through time. Um, okay, so my third pick, I'll also take a point guard to pair with Iverson, who I can play off ball, and I'll take Steve Nash from Santa Clara. Excellent. Um, so again, I think like that's often forgotten that this this legend of the game from Canada went to Santa Clara and played, which, again, is not historically a basketball powerhouse. Did you learn anything about him in your, your research and his time there? You know, um, he he was there. Uh, they had bad luck in the West Coast Conference tournaments uh, generally when he was there. Of course, he did get to play in the NCAA tournament, but that slightly overlapped with the era of uh, Loyola Marymount, which I devote a chapter to in the book. And uh, he was he was a sensational college player, and he made a splash at the time. No, it wasn't necessarily obvious that he was going to go on to be an, an NBA legend, but uh, he, he was very much uh, a topic of conversation, I would say, in the 1990s. He, he, was, he was a legit, he was a wizard as a point guard. Yeah. So I think, again, part of the trick with this, too, is thinking like, are you thinking just the college career? I am, in my mind, bringing the whole package in the pro career and everything. Uh, so I'm happy to have uh, to have Nash and Iverson together in the backcourt. Uh, all right. So up to you for your, your fourth pick. So far, you have um, Bill Russell, Dwayne Wade and Jameer Nelson. So who, where are you going next? Yeah, I think I have to go old school uh, with my next pick because. Uh, I can see the headlines uh, off of this podcast if this person goes unpicked, and it would be like uh, I have experience with this at ESPN. When you make lists of things, the <laughs> the immediate response is the one the one person you left off, and I I, I don't want that to happen. So uh, I am going to go with Bob Cousy at uh, Holy Cross, and uh, he was uh, perhaps the. Uh, the first uh, Jesuit uh, basketball legend, and uh, he was he was an amazing uh, college player, and of course went on to great success with the with the Boston Celtics. What what uh, nuggets about Kuzi uh, did you unearth that were surprising uh, in your research? He was a feisty guy for one thing. Uh, he he got into a, a, a quarrel with his uh, coach Doggy Julian, and uh, over uh, you know missing a practice, and so. Uh, Julian benched him at the next game, and then late in the first half, when Holy Cross was behind and needed its best players, he gestured for Kuzi to go in the game, and Kuzi uh, remained firmly seated and said, "No, uh, not going to happen." He is reputed to be the first and you know a great example of how can we ever confirm this one way or the other. But Kuzi is confirmed to be the first college player ever to execute a behind-the-back dribble during a game. Uh, just a, a legendary uh, handler of the ball and uh, uh, a, a schoolboy legend uh, coming out of New York City. Uh, he was recruited to Holy Cross at a time when they did not have a place where they played home games and as Kuzi was touring the campus as a recruit, he said, Coach, where do we play? And they said, uh, it, the response was, well, there, there's a gymnasium under construction. Well, the gymnasium was not constructed until the mid-1970s, but Kuzi, Kuzi went there anywhere. And uh, they did win the NCAA tournament and national title in 1947 with Bob Kuzi. 
All right. Well, I'm going to flash forward a few decades. This is kind of a sentimental pick, but in terms of someone who you just like, I, I, I don't know, I would want to go into battle with this guy. Uh, and again, because such a you know tragic story, but um, another Philly connection. I'll go with Hank Gathers uh, from Loyola Marymount for my fourth pick, who uh, just like a fearsome scorer and rebounder, played above his height. Um, again, and of course, like tragically, you know, died during a game, right? He was playing and, and uh, had a heart condition and um, and was on those great, you know, that great LMU team. Uh, you mentioned that you have a whole chapter about, so I'm happy to take him on the team and also to learn a little bit about uh, about him from uh, your book. What were uh, some of the things you you uncovered about about Hank and that team from the uh, the late '80s? He was a remarkable player. He's a very good uh, draft pick. It would be the first thing that I would say. Uh, it's on. Uh, he was a, a ferocious rebounder and a great scorer, both. And he he had played himself into a position where he very likely could have had an NBA career, which is remarkable because at six foot seven, he was in effect playing center in college. But I mean, that's how good he was, was he could have been a a rebounding workhorse uh, at the next level. And uh, famously, uh, after he passed away during a game at the West Coast Conference Tournament, uh, the league gave the uh, automatic bid to Loyola Marymount because they had won the regular season. The coach of Loyola Marymount, Paul Westhead, said uh, he didn't know if his players could or would want to continue, and he would abide by whatever decision they came to, and he, he left them alone to decide, and they decided literally in less than one minute, yes, they wanted to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Gathers was a natural right-hander who was a terrible free-throw shooter, and in his senior season, uh, driven desperation, he announced that he was going to start shooting free-throws left-handed. That is where the tribute uh, during the 1990 tournament from his teammate Bo Kimball came from. Uh, Kimball shot the first free-throw of each game in the tournament left-handed as a tribute to Gathers. And uh, famously, Uh, There's a great, uh, if you don't uh, get to my book first, there's a great ESPN 30 30 for 30 on this topic called The Guru of Go. Uh, But they they made it all the way to the Elite Eight, (laughs) and particularly in their round of 32 game against defending champion Michigan, they set records that still stand for most points in a game most threes by a team and uh, most threes by a player, Jeff Ryer. So it was a, it was a great story in 1990 and uh, it was uh, a privilege to be able to, to share a little bit of it in the book. Mm. Uh, excellent. All right. So uh, on to your fifth and final pick, John. Oh, we've run out of, uh, <laughs> we've run out of institutions that are untouched by, I think uh, keep in keeping with my theme of national players of the year, Uh, I do have to go with uh, Doug McDermott out of Creighton. He was an absolute uh, scoring machine, and he did so efficiently. He made his shots, and uh, he was just a a remarkable player uh, for the Blue Jays uh, here about uh, eight, nine, ten years ago. Yeah, no, can't go wrong. Still making it in the NBA, uh, finding a role for himself. Um, son of the the head coach, uh, still at, at Creighton. Uh, great, yeah, just a great college player, certainly. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good pick. That's a good strong five there. Um, let's see though. I I I I'm like, but my my identity, you know, with Baylor, Iverson, and Gathers, especially, like we're kind of you know we're tough. 
we're going to yeah. come at you. So I'm going to yeah. keep up that um, that mentality with David West from Xavier to kind of be nice. to go. This is like an old fashioned team in some ways, right? We not nice. the most yeah. shooting, uh, but after I said we're going to play by today's rules, um, but yeah, happy to have David West to just you know in terms of just like the toughest guy, so much fun to watch, um, both in, in college and the pros uh, from an underrated Xavier program that's you know been really solid. Uh, over the past couple decades, um, so yeah, I, I'm happy for him. He and uh, Hank, you know, can take turns playing small ball center on this team. Um, but yeah, I feel good about him. Yeah, those are two. Uh, those are two strong teams. And to uh, everybody that we left off, uh, I know. Okay, <laughs> don't right. don't don't yell at me. Wait a minute. <laughs> we left off someone who is uh, really. We don't have anyone from Gonzaga on this team on either of our teams. We don't have John Stockton on our teams. Um, we're going to hear from Gonzaga people uh, first. Um, and understandably, they've had a lot of great players. I think Stockton's probably the Gonzaga pick. Um, but uh, I guess we went with some some underdogs. That's good. So, yeah, so people left on the, the board here. At, well, obviously Stockton and then or anyone else from Gonzaga. Who would be your Gonzaga? Adam Morrison from Gonzaga is on the cover of your book, who was, again, a great college player who then uh, didn't quite make it in the next level. But in terms of that run, he had pretty unbelievable. Um Adam Morrison liked to wear a T-shirt that said, "If it wasn't for offense, I'd play defense." I, I think that uh, <laughs> that summed him up rather well. So much more fun offense than defense. Um, exactly. Let me think. Who else on the board? Um, Marquette has some other great players, obviously. BC Jared Dudley was my pick. Would be on my pick from BC. He uh, still is hanging around the league and is kind of like a mentor figure and also very funny. He's a funny guy. Um, Larry Hughes from SLU. Can't forget our friends out at SLU, Larry Hughes, kind of in that like pretty ugly era of basketball in like the early part of the millennium. But uh, but still, he you know never saw a shot he didn't like. Right, um, Detroit Mercy, Dave. I can never get his last name right. Dave Debusher, Dave Debusher, yeah, Debusher, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, from the yeah. Knicks, the kind of another undersized center type. Uh, Fordham had Smush Parker, who played in the league. Uh, for a while too, uh, yeah. So those are those are some of the others I, I had been preparing. So make sure all of our schools get some love today. And um, even as even as we speak, I think I'm getting a text here from Sister Jean saying, "What about Jerry Harkness at Loyola Chicago?" I mean, we could just <laughs> we that's could, right. We, we, could, we could go on and on and on. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>